0: Yesterday at, at David's funeral. And I don't always go to the tea, as you know, after, don't usually, in fact, do that. But elder, David was an elder, a manager of this congregation. And I was there, I was sitting, speaking to a young man, well, a youngish man, that Pauline, she did, he did describe you as like another mum, because Pauline had been very much involved in helping to support his own mum in bringing up this young, young fellow. Well, but he's not that young, kind of towards Graham's age, not that young. <laughs> But how impressed I was by him as a person. And yet, interesting enough, he has no connection with church, there's no background. And at the very end of our conversation, I said, Oh, have you ever thought of coming to the church? And interesting, the response was not, Oh, no, you know, kind of, you know. It was, Oh, never even thought about it. And of course, that's the challenge, isn't it? Yes, we have people who are definitely, you know, no way. Um, and it's bad, and everything else, and, and, and we know that, and, and, and that's the important work that Carden's doing, that Elizabeth at the Gold Conference is doing, and other ways, preparing young people for facing that quite deliberate, no, actually, this is wrong. But there's also a vast majority of people who think, oh, right, oh, why, aye, aye, that place is in the main street, or that place, i never even thought about it. How do we, as Christian people, live out that life of faith in such a complex world and setting, and a world which we're only too well aware is a world of increasing war and stress and conflict. I was listening this morning, as I quite often do in a Sunday morning, to the Sunday program on Radio 4, which is the review of um, Christian church, activities. They do touch upon other faiths, which is fair enough. Um, But it's largely from a Christian perspective, in the broadest sense, of the, and a Radio 4 BBC kind of perspective. But interesting, one of the things that was on this morning was an interview with one of the leaders of the church in Gaza, which you can imagine, being a Christian and being probably Palestinian, living in the Gaza Strip, is certainly not easy at the present time and the person being interviewed was saying that and of course there may be other believers of course who are not included within the these two traditions of the church there are two buildings there's a a catholic building and there's an orthodox building Um, but what's happened the commentator was saying was that christian people have gathered there for protection and they're gathering in the compound a very small community persecuted community. They're persecuted by fellow Palestinians. They're not welcomed, sadly, by Jewish messianic believers, by some but often by not by many, and isolated. How do you live out the life of faith in that kind of world? Well, that's why, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, that's why the writer is keen to speak about these matters at the end of this letter. As we've said more than once, indeed, and many times, the writer is writing to Christians who are facing um, challenges within the life of the early church. Especially from the Jewish influence to go back to the law. Jesus is all very well, but you actually need to have this or do that or or practice in this kind of way in order to be really real kosher believers. But also living in a world where persecution of the church was increasing. The latter part of the first century and during the second century AD. Well that was a real time when many Christians were martyred for the faith. Burnt at the stake, thrown to the lions and whatever else. How do you live out the life of faith in a real world? As a child at school, as a teenager, as a young man or woman at university or college. Or starting working life, as a middle aged person with the pressures of work and the demands of family, as an older person facing the challenges of that stage within our life, how do we, if it doesn't work in the real world, then frankly, we have to ask, is it worthwhile following it at all? And so the writer is saying here, yes, it does work, but it does involve work. Let me read again the verses we read last Sunday from Hebrews chapter 13 and reading from verse 1. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy places as sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices god is pleased have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watching over you as those who must give an account do this so that their work will be a joy not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you pray for us we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Amen. And may God indeed by his Spirit bless his word and take his word into our hearts. We spent some time last Sunday looking at that one little verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I think I said last Sunday, but I'll say again today. It was interesting when I looked at the commentaries that I have. I'm not saying, of course, I don't have an exhaustive collection of commentaries. And in due course, I'll be downsizing even more. Um, because the amount of books that I have at the man's that sit there, and i have to confess, do gather a degree of dust, is, is such that someday that's all going to have to be cut back a bit. But in the, commentators, the commentaries that I do have, it was interesting that that little verse was almost, it was mentioned in passing. And very much the emphasis was on all the things that we are going to touch upon, obviously, in a few minutes. But I hope, anyway, last Sunday, we recognize that that verse is vital. You see, my friends, if we don't have that relationship with Jesus at the center of things, then actually, yes, Christianity becomes a religion of works, of things that we do. And you can follow here, indeed, on the intimation sheet, you can see that we are to be loving, pure, content, loyal, orthodox, and bold worshipful and prayerful, all of those things. And indeed, that is what we're called to do. But my friends, that comes out of a love relationship with Jesus. We see that, don't we, in our own lives. We go the extra mile. We do things we wouldn't particularly choose to do. We spend time involved in things that humanly speaking, ourselves, we wouldn't want to do, but we do that because we love our life partner, or we love our children, or we have a love for friends, and born out of that relationship of love with someone, then we will do these things. We will spend time. We will commit ourselves in various kinds of ways. Why? Not because, in a sense, we have to, but because we want to, And so it's vital that we understand that. That Jesus and our relationship with Him, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one who was the pre incarnate, the one who spoke and brought everything into being, the one who is the light that conquers the darkness, the one who took free of flesh and came amongst us, the one who is the Lamb of God who came to take away our sins. And we saw that even at this point, in the midst of all these instructions of how we should live, we're reminded in verse 11 of Hebrews 13 that the blood of animals is carried as a sin offering. And so, Jesus comes, and what we're told, Jesus also suffers outside the city gate to make his people holy through his own blood. That sacrificial lamb, that ultimate sign of God's grace and love, all of that stands at the heart of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian. It's not about rules, regulations, and attending a particular building or church. But it is about living out the Jesus way in our world, as it was for these first century Christians. And so the emphasis right at the beginning of this little section is that we are to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, the call to love. Now, of course, that's a major theme in the New Testament. John, particularly in his letter, emphasizes all of that. For instance, John chapter 3, in verse, first, first letter of John chapter 3 in verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's right at the center. But then he goes on to say, And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and see a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can that love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The testimony of being a believer and having that love relationship with Jesus is that we have a love for our brothers and sisters. And that's demonstrated, we're told, in practical ways. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. We are to be open to others, to other believers. We certainly see that lived out in many parts of the world, amongst the church, that welcoming of people into homes, often at the cost, not just financially, in terms of entertaining people, but also the cost of being identified and recognized as Christians themselves. Can I ask you quite simply, when was the last time you showed hospitality to another believer? I.e., not somebody who's in your family, like your wife or your husband, but someone else. When was the last time you offered to go out with someone for a coffee? Or to go for a walk? Or to have them, dare I say, even in your home? And to maybe even have a meal? Or at least to put the kettle on and offer a cup of tea and a biscuit? Well, no folk from Edinburgh, you know, you've had your tea. Mm -hmm. But that's a challenge, isn't it? God has blessed us with homes. Now, I know some of us, of course, are married to people who aren't Christians, and that limits what we can do and everything else. But we can still go out for a coffee. We can still spend time. When we became and professed our faith and became members of the church, not just our congregation, this church, we promised to give a fitting proportion of our time, our talents, and our money. Do we give our time to others? the ministry of hospitality, and particularly to people that we don't necessarily know. Notice what it says, to strangers. It's all very well being friendly with our friends. But to get to know someone else, to go that extra mile, yes, dare I say, to have two bachelors for dinner, one of whom has very strict dietary requirements, as some of you will know. That's the key we don't just love in words. We're to love in actions and in deeds. We are to be loving. And we're also called to be pure. Marriage should be honoured by all. The marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. One of the things that impressed me with that fellow yesterday was his commitment to his family and to his marriage, and the way he spoke about that very genuinely and very sincerely, and the challenge of that in living in the contemporary world. We all know. And that includes older people, because let's be honest, nowadays older people means folk that were brought up in the 60s and 70s, so we're not, we're not living back in the Victorian era. <laughs> Did somebody say the fools, if they are? <laughs> well, I identify with that, but we weren't. We all know the pressures and the temptations and the damage it causes when those temptations become actions the breaking of trust, the breakdown of relationships, the breakdown of a family, not having a dad or a mum. God judges the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That's a challenging word, is it not, to our society? And actually, one of the ways why sometimes these things become to the fore and adultery and other things happen actually goes because we're actually not content with what we have. And again, we have to be honest, we can all become a bit woony and lack in contentment. So therefore, the writer goes on, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Contentment with godliness is a great gain. Remember those verses in First Timothy. Again, Paul writing to Christians who were beginning to face the challenge of the times in which he lived, and he says this: "But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But we have food and clothing." we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That lack of contentment. Do you ever listen to your children or perhaps to your grandchildren and they're just not content with what they have? compared to the folk living in Gaza or the folk living in other parts of the world, we are so blessed. And yet it's an irony and a paradox that the more we have often, the less content we are. And that's a seedbed that causes all sorts of things, such as adultery, such as abuse, such as selfishness, and a giving in to the me-centered dynamic that, unfortunately, so many others within our society have already given into. Jesus loves us freely. He was pure, without spot and stain. And He comes to bring that sense of contentment that our times and our life are in the hands of the eternal God and that doesn't impact on who we are and how we deal with things nothing else well but as the writer goes on and we just as you see working through this section as the writer goes on then he draws our attention that it's not just the did I say, the ordinary members of a fellowship the people of God those who lead are meant to inspire us and encourage us. And so in verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their ways of life and imitate their faith. And again in verse 17, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. In conversation yesterday with that dear friend, talking about the lockdowns and COVID and all the rest of it, he expressed a view that I know many others, especially those who had families expressed, which was while they could understand some of the reasons why some of the things were done, the damage, and he spoke very movingly of his own challenge in his working life, but also the damage with family life. They were fortunate. They have a nice house and they have a garden, but many people they knew weren't so blessed. The damage of all of that, and the question over leaders, leaders who said one thing, but then very obviously did something different um, in Downing Street and in elsewhere. Leaders, if you follow the inquiry, I'm sure probably very few of us do, but if we are following the inquiry. Leaders who are now pointing to each other and say, it wasn't me, it was them. And you've seen that from the medical professional people who are saying, oh, we never suggested this. And in a few weeks' time, we're going to hear a politician saying, oh, we were told this pointing the finger at each other. And the general sense there is of scepticism and cynicism, more seriously, about those who lead. And that's true across all the political parties and all the different views that people have. And that's also true within the life of the church. And I think, sadly, sadly, But rightly, we often have to question those who particularly have a public role of leadership of the church within our nation. We're not well led. But, the writer says, your leaders are meant to inspire you. They're meant to speak the word of God to you, and as you as a congregation think of the future and what God might bring to us here as a fellowship in terms of leaders, that surely must be one of the first things you're looking for. Someone who will come and speak the Word of God to you, who will open up the Bible and seek to share that truth so that together we might grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, someone who's not a plaster, who isn't a plaster cast saint, who doesn't float above everything else and is perfect in a human Sense somebody who has challenges, somebody whose weaknesses, everything else, but nonetheless seeks to model and reveal Jesus. Because as his people do that as leaders, then you can have, as the writer says here, confidence in them and submit to their authority. And why do we do that? Because they keep watch over us as those who must give an account. The writer there. I'm not saying he's referring to these verses, but these verses in First in Peter come to mind as he's talking. Let me read to you these verses from First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Shepherds, who, yes, have to use the rod and the staff, both to protect the flock, to guard the flock, to guide the flock, but also at times to discipline the flock. We all know which sheep can be like, and they can wander. And sometimes you can get a rogue sheep in the flock that will cause all sorts of problems and lead the rest of the sheep to begin to go away. And there has to be action and a, de- a degree of firmness. And for good or ill, I suppose, I've had to try and model that as a minister for what, the last 34 years. And not always done it well or wisely. I'm the first to say that. But that's the calling of a leader. And we are called to submit to them, not because we must, but because we recognise that God wants order. And also desires what's best for us. And as a shepherd who defends the flock, he, she, desires that flock to move on into green pastures so that souls might be restored. And one of the sad things in the wider church—yes, there's many challenges with a more traditional Type of church as we have, and again, those of us who are ministers and leaders within our denomination and within Presbyteriandom, we be the first to accept that they're far—it's far from perfect. We're always quite ha- happy that when somebody becomes a minister of the church or an elder of the church, you simply—well, simply—but you have to agree that it's agreeable with the Word of God. The form of church government doesn't mean it's the only form of church government, or indeed that it's the answer to church government. But it's agreeable to the Word of God. But As we watch, and not not all of us do this, but as we watch and we listen to what's going on in the wider church, where there is a bit like the end of the book of Judges, where each does that which is right in their own eyes, and congregations split here, there, and everywhere over a whole host of issues which are neither substantial or substantive. There's a lot to be said for things being in order and for there to be recognized leaders and a pastor teacher who shepherds the flock. Because at the end of the day, friends, I can assure you, I'll have to give an account for how I've done that at the judgment seat. We are to be loyal to the flock and to those who lead us. That doesn't mean blind loyalty, but it does mean prayerful, and I'm saying this to you, and I know that, prayerful and loving loyalty. I was very touched last Sunday by just the quiet ways in which you expressed that to me at the end of the service, and that's born out of having orthodox teaching. That doesn't mean we become all orthodox in terms of a denomination. But look what he says and see how it's all connected together. Do not be carried away, verse 9, by all kinds of strange teachings. Well, there's plenty of that going about, I can assure you. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not be eating ceremonial foods which have no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy places a sin offering, but the bodies of burned outside the camp and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Remember last Sunday we made reference to a little verse in the book of Jude, the last letter. Before we come to Revelation and probably the last letter in terms of dating that we have in the New Testament. And these words, Jude again, beginning, well there's only one chapter. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign Lord. And we have to recognize again, as you look to the future, we have to discern those who lead our men and women who are orthodox in their convictions, who believe in the truths revealed in Scripture, in the uniqueness of Christ, in the virgin birth in his sinless perfection, in his death on the cross as an atoning sacrifice, in the bodily resurrection, in his ascension to heaven, and in his return to judge the living and the dead. And I'm not saying anything new. That is the creedal basis for the church. But sad to say, not within our own denomination, I would have to say that, but within the wider church, there are ministers and pastors and those who would claim to be leaders who deny these things or who so use language so convoluted that you're left wondering actually what they believe. Is that not the case? And they say things and you'll listen to it and say, well, some of that sounds okay, but I'm just not sure about the rest. That should never be the case. There shouldn't be some sort of confusion or fog over what those who lead believe. And supremely, as the writer reminds us here, of Jesus as a sin offering as the scapegoat. We know that phrase, but literally in the Biblical Testament thing, as the one in whom our sins were laid and was sent out into that wilderness. The one who hung on the cross on that hill. The very same hill that Abraham, remember, we looked at that during the summer. Remember, was, was, well, he thought he was going to have to sacrifice Isaac. And then the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself saying, no, will, I will provide a sacrifice. Don't do that. And the writer in Genesis tells us that a sacrifice will be provided. That's in the Old Testament. Well, the sacrifice is provided in Jesus Christ. So we don't change the words of hymns because we don't like the fact that they speak of that atoning sacrifice. Nor do we alter the teaching of Scripture in order to accommodate social trends or sexual norms. That's not to say we go about thumping people over the head with these things. Least of all, we go about pointing the finger. But nonetheless, to be orthodox, is to stand in the testimony of Scripture. And we're called, as the people of God, not just as leaders, to do that. And when we do that, that gives us confidence. And therefore, the writer says, in verse 13, Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. I was hearing just this week of a tremendous story of conversion, which a pity I hadn't been shared. I was saying to Ian earlier, a pity we hadn't heard about that at the presbytery. It was at the presbytery, I heard it. You might think that presbytery is a business meeting. Well, it is, but it's also a time. And it actually was originally meant to be a time where ministers and elders of the church meet to encourage one another and edify one another in the faith. Well, I was very encouraged and edified as I spoke to one of the ministers of the church and heard a very moving story, a very powerful story. I don't know all the details of how the landlord, Nathan, you know, Nathan Owens, who's a minister down in Kilmores and God's doing a great work down there. And Nathan himself, to be fair, because he probably didn't want to draw attention to himself or to his church, never told us It was another colleague that was telling us the landlord of the local pub, who lived quite an exuberant gay lifestyle, has now been converted and is sitting in the congregation and renounced a lifestyle. Not because, not because he was banged over the head by Nathan or by anybody else about a particular lifestyle, but because he heard of Jesus. When he is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. But there's a cost. There's a challenge. Karen mentioned that. We've heard about that. Elizabeth's at a conference this weekend. How do you live out your faith in a school environment where to even hear of that story would be a no-no? How do you live out your life of faith when there's all that pressure to conform, not just to that type of situation, but the whole trans debate? Well, you do so because you have confidence in the faith, in Christ, and who he is, and what he's done, and what he's said, and because, as the writer says here, we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. My home is in glory land. Remember that old song, some of you? That outshines the sun. And so Paul, writing to Christians, living out, the life of faith, he says, "'Join together in Philippians 3 and following my example, brothers and sisters, "'just as you have us as a model, "'keep your eyes on those who live as we do.'" And after speaking about those who have turned away and become enemies of Christ, he says this, "'Our citizenship is in heaven, "'and we eagerly await a Saviour from there, "'the Lord Jesus Christ, "'who by the power that enables him "'to bring everything under his control "'will transform our lowly bodies.'" so that they will be like His glorious body. Our citizenship, is in heaven. You see, my friends, if we undermine Christ, if we undermine who he is and why he came, then everything else will start to undermine the foundations of this church. A story I've told you before, many years ago, long before we had the major renovations, remember, we had to get the floor replaced. We've discovered there was rot in the floor, and the whole floor had to be lifted and had to be fixed. And just as well, because all those years later, when we had to put the scaffolding up, and when the roof was held up, if that floor had been rotten, what would have happened? The scaffolding would have been down through the floor, and judge will testify if that had happened, well, we wouldn't be sitting here today. The foundations have to be right so that we can build the things to the glory of God. That has to be true in our lives, and our living, in the life of the church, and how we understand what it is to be the people of God. And that, therefore, gives us the boldness to stand, and having done all, to stand. And therefore, he says in verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Pray for us, verse 18. We are sure that we have a clear conscience, desire to live honorably in every way, and I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. How do we live? the life of Jesus in our world? Well, it starts and ends with a relationship with him. Paul, writing in Romans 12, these well-known verses, tells us, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and transforms our minds, renews our minds, then we can begin to understand the challenge, but also the confidence we can have in living for Jesus, in the 2020s in Britain. And that causes us, and I have to say in my own heart, I find this, especially when we gather together like this in worship and at other gatherings, it causes, it should hopefully cause us to simply be amazed that there should be such a God, that there should be such a creator who should care and have a concern and compassion for our world. And that he should show such mercy to me, a sinner. And at such cost himself, should have brought me into a relationship with with mine, with our heavenly Father. And then take someone like me to be his child, to be his servant, to be his ambassador for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That surely should draw from the heart of all of us a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And be seen in the way we do good to others and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And move us to pray, to pray for these believers sheltering in those churches in the Gaza Strip, to pray for Messianic believers in Israel, with all sorts of teachings from other churches, especially from the United States, sorry, Evan, especially the United States, that would say all kinds of things. I was speaking with somebody actually just on Thursday who was convinced that this weekend Christ was going to return And everything else. And I did say to the person, well, if I see you in church, I see you. If I don't, well, we'll see you in glory. Well, I'm hearing they're not. We can get easily carried away, all sorts of things. We actually stop doing the very thing we should do, which is to pray. What do we say most Sundays? Your kingdom come. Will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so we pray. We pray for our believers. Last Sunday, if you still have your intimation sheet. Believer in Somalia, how dangerous it is to be a Christian there. We just don't understand, do we? What it is to stand for Jesus in the midst of all of that. We need to pray to lift up holy hands, to commend them to the Lord and to seek his face so that we reveal him to our life, to our families, to our friends, to the guy who was sitting beside yesterday. You know what I did, friends? I didn't preach a sermon. I just listened. Just listened. And patting the arm at the appropriate points. You know, the old saying, we're given one of these, but perhaps you need to listen more to the Lord and to the people that we know so that we might be a witness to Jesus. I have a CD in the car. It's rather old now, from about 1999. It's a Hillsong CD. That's one of the songs. And Even as we sang that song, I can picture the lake in the Lake District and the car. Me and John were on the front seat, and three men were squeezed into the back seat. One of those men's now in glory, Mark. One of the other men is in Kilmores as a minister. The other one is in Hanoi in Vietnam. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I give you my life. Every breath that I take, in the moment I'm awake. Lord, have your way in me. Let's pray together. We offer ourselves to you in love this morning, Lord. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus we offer you our lives, our living. We offer you our past, perhaps with our failures and the issues that we find it hard to come to terms with. We offer you our present, with all the challenges and the hopes and expectations, and we offer the future, which is unknown, known only to you. But we offer them to you, Jesus, because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, our great High Priest. When we say that we love you. We know that means we're there for our call to love one another. When we say we want to serve you, and we know that sometimes means having to do things which, humanly speaking, selfishly speaking, we wouldn't want to do. But we do it. Because, Lord Jesus, you went to that place of the cross for us. And so receive our offerings. maybe may be done through the bank, or it may be in the plate at the door, but receive our offerings as a token, as a thank-token of life's laid down in adoration before you. In Jesus' name, Amen.